Hey, everybody, this is Dr. Michael Bruce, the sleep doctor here. And once again, we are back with an episode of Sleep Success with Dr. Michael Bruce. And today we have a treat. I know I say that almost every time that we have a treat, but the good news is, is that I have a dear friend, somebody who's been a mentor to me for quite a long period of time, a published author and somebody who's extremely well-known in the sleep field, Dr. Wally Mendelson. So for folks of you who don't know Wally, let me give you a little bit of background on him. Dr. Mendelson is a professor of psychiatry and clinical pharmacology, as well as a director of the Sleep Research Laboratory. He's retired now at the University of Chicago. He earned his MD degree from Washington University School of Medicine in St. Louis and completed a residency in psychiatry there as well. He's held professorships at Ohio State University, the State University of New York at Stony Brook, Stony Brook, and uh, the chief of the section on sleep studies at the National Institute of Mental Health in Bethesda, Maryland, as well as the director of the Sleep Disorder Center at the Cleveland Clinic. Basically, there's not a whole lot that Dr. Mendelson hasn't done. I'm only listing literally half of this bio that I've got for you, Wally, because it's so ridiculous. You're super famous in the sleep universe, and you've done so many amazing things to contribute to the field. Uh, I'm excited to have you join me today. And uh, very briefly, I want to tell people a little bit about how you have influenced me. So for folks of you, you may not know this, but Dr. Mendelssohn um, has written extensively um, in the area, in the psychiatry area, specifically around um, psychiatric medications, their effects on sleep. He's got several different books out now. I want to highlight one book that we'll be talking about quite a bit today, which is called Understanding Sleeping Pills. You know, you can't pick a better topic than that for sure for this crowd, um, but he's, he's a very accomplished author. Um, he's written uh, lots of different books. One of my favorites that just came out recently was called The Curious History of Medicines in Psychiatry. Um, and then he's got several more. I highly recommend that we check them out on Amazon. Don't worry, we'll put all the links in the show notes. So if you listen to the podcast and you click on that link, we'll send you right to um, several of Dr. Mendelssohn's books. So Wally, welcome to the show. Thank you, Michael. It's great to be here with you. I'm so excited to have you on. So, you know, the first question that I like to ask a lot of people, especially people like you who've been in the sleep field um, as long as you have, you know, I got into sleep medicine about 20, 25 years ago. I think you were a little ahead of me um, on that on that curve. What was sleep medicine like when you started to get into it and who else was even interested? Well, actually, when I, when I started, which would be... Uh... In the area of 1969, there really wasn't a field of sleep medicine. Uh, <laughs> right. There, there, aside from uh, the group at Stanford, uh, which had begun a narcolepsy clinic, which is a very new and uh, radical thing in those days, uh, there were a few doctors who viewed themselves as sleep doctors, and, and there really wasn't a profession as such. Uh, so I'm, I've been very privileged to watch it, uh, watch it grow, uh, you know, from from the very beginning. So when you were doing, for example, your residency in psychiatry, um, was was there any mention of sleep and sleep disorders in the in the psychiatric residency back in the day? There, there was virtually none. Uh, there was, there was, there was almost nothing about insomnia and uh, sleeping pills. Uh, were just touched on very briefly in a very superficial way. 
and and as you can guess, absolutely nothing about behavioral treatments of uh, of chronic sleep disorders. Uh, I've I've been very gratified to see how that's changed over the years. There there have been many landmarks. Uh, certainly, one was uh, Christian Guillemot's uh, book on sleep apnea in 1979, helped begin defining a whole era, and and uh, many changes like that as as time went on. It, you know, it's so amazing because so many interesting discoveries have kind of occurred. I mean, your career is literally the career of sleep medicine, right? You know, kind of thinking back 1969, by the way, I was one years old in 1969. Um, and, you know, like thinking back about that, you really got to see us all learn about sleep in such amazing, unique ways. What were some of the first projects that you worked on as a, as a young researcher, as a young clinician? Well, actually, the way I got into the field influenced that. I, it was during oh. the, it was during the Vietnam War years, mm-hmm. and I was doing my military service uh, at a big general psychiatric hospital in Washington called Saint Elizabeth's. Sure. And uh, I was trying to uh, find a place uh, in the one lone research building, which the National Institute of Mental Health had there rather than being on the general wards because my inclination was toward research Hmm. and uh by chance somebody quit in the sleep laboratory (laughs) now if somebody had quit in the schizophrenia laboratory or something my bipolar laboratory (laughs) that's right my whole life might have been different but as it happened uh there was a very active sleep research in psychiatry group headed by uh, my mentor, Richard Jed Wyatt, and uh, my colleague, uh, uh, Chris Gillen. And they were both wonderful mentors and teachers. And in the case of Chris, uh, you know, went on to be a lifetime friend and colleague uh, at the NIMH. Uh, a lot of the studies had to do with sleep and psychiatric disorders, especially sleep and depression, but also sleep and schizophrenia and and many other disorders. And the interest was in neurochemicals and how they might be related to sleep. Um, in those days, they were just beginning to discover that the neurotransmitters, serotonin and norepinephrine and acetylcholine, were very involved in sleep regulation. And that was sort of where I began. I mean, it's li- you were literally at the beginning of the study of this whole era. And so were you influenced more on the depression side and insomnia, or were you playing more around in the schizophrenia side, or did you have interests in both? Well, I think uh, I've always been fascinated by sleep and depression. And then, yeah. and, and as time went on, depression is so tightly interwoven with insomnia, something we can certainly talk about later. Uh, it was a natural move to move into uh, insomnia uh, as well. You know, and and what's so fascinating to me, you know, I mean, I don't know if you remember, but I I was a technologist in the laboratory of uh, Dr. Richard Bootson, um, one of the, you know, seminal, you know, uh, insomnia, behavioral insomnia researchers uh, back in the day. I know you guys were old friends um, for many, many years. 
And, uh, you know, when you start to look at all of these different ideas, I'm very curious, and I know our audience would be curious too. Let's, uh, let's open up that topic of sleep and depression just a little bit more, since it really is such an area of expertise for you. Help us understand when somebody has depression, what, what seems to happen to their sleep? Well, in depression, sleep becomes shorter, shallower, uh, more intense, and I'll explain that in a moment. Uh, and less restful. Uh, shorter is pretty obvious. There's less sleep. Uh, by shower, we mean there's less of deep sleep or slow wave sleep. Um, and by intense, what I mean is uh, this is an area that Chris Gillen and I studied for years. Uh, REM sleep is very different uh, during depression. First of all, it starts earlier in the night than it does in other folks. And secondly, the number of eye movements in REM sleep uh, is much higher. So these are real physiological markers. And we became very excited because one of the big issues in uh, depression research is finding so-called you know, biological markers. And there, are, there have been several. There have been some that related to the endocrine system. But one of them is the short REM sleep. Now, the thing to remember about that, though, is that it is very, very sensitive for depression, but it's not very specific for depression. And by that, I mean shorter REM sleep occurs in many illnesses uh, uh, besides um, depression. So it, it's very sensitive, but, but doesn't make a diagnosis. Gotcha. Gotcha. So when somebody, you know, what's interesting is having, you know, had a general psychology practice for 20 years, um, obviously sleep related, you know, with depression, I, I feel like there are two types of depressed sleep patients in my, in my clinics. There are the ones like you described that sleep less, but then I've got some patients that I'm not sure if they're sleeping, but they're certainly staying in bed longer and longer and longer. Have you had that experience? And, and what do you think that phenomenon is? Well, certainly some patients do stay in bed uh, much longer as a, as a part of a package of withdrawal and so on. But generally, they're, they're on a sleep EEG, the total sleep is, is often not, not increased. There, there, are, there are two groups of depressed patients who do tend to be sleepier instead of, and those tend to be people with bipolar disorder, depression. And those with what used to be called atypical depressions. So one good thing that I always keep in mind is if a depressed patient seems to be, you know, excessively sleepy or sleep too much, I, I, in the back of my mind, I always want to be careful and look for any possible bipolar disorder. Gotcha. That makes sense to me. One of the things that I, I also think about, and this is outside of the realm of insomnia, um, is also potentially uh, obstructive sleep apnea. You know, So if I've got a depressed patient that comes through the door and they're sleeping long periods of time, sometimes I wonder, hmm, could there be an underlying apnea that could be fueling some of this depression? Have you seen that as well? Well, sure. Um, I didn't mention obstructive sleep apnea because uh, as, as you will recognizing your practice, it tends to be uh, associated with a complaint of excessive sleepiness. Right. More <laughs> a complaint of, uh, of depression. Yeah, uh, absolutely. And, and the other, but, but of course it, it can present 
uh, as a sleep disturbance complaint. And of course, the other is central sleep apnea, right? Which uh, which does more typically present as an insomnia complaint. And uh, I sure do agree with you to be very much aware of both. And, and there's important reasons. Uh, and the first reason is that uh, if 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 obstructive or central sleep apnea are are present, then a treatment for the insomnia is the wrong treatment. <laughs> right. <laughs> and, and and it's and what it needs to make sleep better is to treat the obstructive sleep apnea or central sleep apnea with with treatments specific to them, like like CPAP for the OSA. Absolutely. I totally agree with you. You know, still hanging out in the depression and sleep universe, do you feel that there's any gender differences there? I have a tendency to see more female patients um, on my depression insomnia group than males, but I don't really know the data specific to that. Do you have any insights there? I'm not aware of a study that shows that that, 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 Insomnia tends to be worse in in females than males. There may be that I'm not aware, but what I can tell you is that epidemiologically, right, uh, depression is more common in women, so it would make sense. And similarly, uh, insomnia uh, and the use of sleeping pills tend to be more common in, in women. So, so they they both could lead to what you what you see in the clinic. Uh, yeah. Makes sense. That makes sense to me. So continuing down this depression idea, I know a lot of times depression can be treated with an antidepressant medication, right? Which is your area of specialty, right? Tricyclic antidepressants, SSRIs, SNRIs, all of these different types of medications. Um, I'd love to give the audience an understanding about how some of these medications have known effects on sleep. Number one, how do we use antidepressants to treat depression and what are some of the sleep side effects from those known drugs? And then we'll open it up again and look at, do we use these antidepressants to actually treat insomnia? That's a separate question that I know a lot of doctors out there use things like trazodone and things like that. I'll get to that question second. I'm most curious right now in your opinion about when we're using medications to treat depression, how do some of those medications affect our sleep? Well, um, in the large universe of antidepressants, uh, there's a lot of them. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> different drugs do different ways. Some um, some can uh, be uh, produce sleepiness, and in fact, they can be a side effect from some. Some can cause insomnia. Uh, right. Uh, at least one antidepressant in much lower doses than. Uh, is typically used for depression is actually on the market as a treatment for waking uh, uh, waking up during the night. So there's, there's a very a very very wide range out there. The the important thing to bear in mind, you know, is that um, depression can also be part of the package of obstructive sleep apnea. And, yeah. So just as when you have an, an insomnia patient. It's wise to think of sleep disorder breathing. When you have depression, it's very, very important to do that. And um, one of the things I, I try to, to teach my trainees is this is especially something to think about when you have a person with depression uh, who's who's not responding to treatments. Ah, so good point. Are, 
those are the folks where, you know, when a patient isn't responding, it can be a positive as well as a negative experience. And by a positive experience, what I mean is it can be a moment where you'd say to yourself, boy, I better sit back and just think this through again and go back to the very beginning. And it can be very helpful if both you and the patient do just that. And as you do sit back and go through thinking of everything, one of the things to think about is could there be undiagnosed sleep apnea? Looking at the side effect profile of most antidepressant medications, what are some of the things that one would expect? Like, would it be a lowering of REM? Would it be a lighter sleep? Some people actually have the opposite effect. I found some people that I put them on, for example, uh, another type of drug, and they sleep even better. So it's uh, it's very interesting to look at the differences. It's absolutely true. Uh, some some of uh, antidepressants, particularly some of the older ones, uh, can, can uh, uh, make a person sleepy during the daytime. They, it can have a number of other kinds of side effects. So as an example, when I have somebody who they've been placed on an antidepressant um, and um, they're reporting to me that they're sleepy during the daytime, what oftentimes I'll do is I'll contact their physician and find out if we can change the timing of the dose of administration, right? So instead of taking it in the morning, um, asking them to take things in the evening. Um, how? What do you think about change? Obviously, you would want to talk with your doctor. We're not giving medical advice here. But when people are finding that uh, medication is making them sleepy during the day, um, do you have them talk with their physicians to see if they might be able to change just the timing, not necessarily the amount, but the timing of that dosage? I found that to be an effective technique sometimes. Absolutely. And the thing to do would be to talk with uh, your doctor about timing, dose, uh, effect, uh, possible interactions with other medicines. Um, and, um, and of course, uh, I'm getting to sound repetitious, but again, whenever I hear sleepiness, I think of sleep apnea. Yep. You and me both. No, you're not sounding repetitious. You're sounding like a well-trained sleep, sleep doctor who's make sure that we're looking for these things. Um, so let's move away from depression for a second. Um, and let's continue to move down that path of insomnia. Um, because we know that insomnia and depression, while linked, can be very different. You certainly don't have to have depression if you have insomnia, and you certainly don't have to have insomnia if you've got depression. You know, when we're looking at these types of ideas of using sleeping medication to help us, before we get to that point, what are some of the ideas that you think are important for us to discuss with our patients? Uh, things along the lines of sleep hygiene recommendations or cognitive behavioral therapies, if you feel that those are important. Well, I guess there, there would be two parts to the answer. The first part is before even getting as far as behavioral therapy or sleep hygiene to first get a very careful uh, examination by a doctor to look for other causes of insomnia. Like what? Well, for instance, it can be medicines. Uh, a, wide, a wide range of medicines can disturb sleep. Sure. Uh, uh, and one would think of over, over especially a lot of over-the-counter preparations. You know, we didn't, we haven't talked about that yet. Over-the-counter preparations. Uh, you know, a lot of them um, actually have been shown to be not so great for sleep. Do you ever recommend the over-counter uh, recommendations for people? Because I really stay away from those. No, I, I pretty much don't. Uh, the reason there are a lot of reasons to be very cautious about over-the-counter medicines and. Uh, the first is that uh, many are sold as uh, 
under the legal category as food additives rather than being uh, medicines. And what this does is this frees them from any uh, scrutiny by the FDA for for uh, effectiveness or uh, and in general for safety if no complaints have been made. So so many of these things uh, have not been checked thoroughly by the FDA because of the category they're in. Secondly, many of the of these uh, sleep preparations that are sold as food additives, uh, what is on the label isn't necessarily what's in the bottle. And there oh. and there have been studies that show huge differences between uh, what the label says and what it actually contains. Once again, it's because the FDA isn't uh, doing. Um, studies of the content because of the category that these are in. So I, I definitely stay away from uh, products that you can buy for sleep that are labeled as, as food additives. Um, Got it. That makes that makes a lot of sense. You know, when we're talking about other things that people add to their bodies and sleep and things like that, there are some things that people use during the daytime that are not so great. Um, for your sleep, things like caffeine, things like alcohol, things like that. You know, one of the things that I've I've been wondering, and I don't know if this is an area of expertise for you or not, so please let me know if it is or it's not. You know, when we look at alcohol and we look at how does alcohol affect sleep, like what is, you know, when people say I passed out, like what does that really mean? Do they do they become anesthetized? Do they become so intoxicated that they lose consciousness? Like what what is that? Well, let's let's answer that in two parts. And the first part is what alcohol does to a, a person who's not addicted to it. And the, Fair second, enough. and the second is what alcohol does to somebody who has clinical alcohol abuse. So let's take, take the first one. Uh, small amounts of alcohol generally uh, can help a person to fall asleep a little more quickly. Mm-hmm. It, I agree. Ha- you know, having said that, you pay a terrible price for that because alcohol is broken down chemically by the body very rapidly. So even though you may fall asleep a little bit quicker, you pay the price of having great sleep disturbance in the second half of the night, a kind of mini withdrawal syndrome. So it's usually very unlikely that using alcohol to help sleep will help the overall overall sleep. If you were Wally, if you were going to make a recommendation to people, aside from don't drink, you know, if, yeah. right? What if I oftentimes I make the recommendation for people that if you have one glass of wine, you should wait, drink one glass of water, and wait one hour before bed. Two glasses of wine, two glasses of water, wait two hours before bed. What do you think of that as an overall recommendation? Does that make sense to you, or is that too short of a period of time? I hear what you're saying. I hadn't thought of it that way. I I really think the best the best idea is to say um, no alcohol. If you have trouble sleeping, uh, that's Fair enough. not to drink. And, and and by the way, another thing to think about: if somebody uh, does drink and they become sleepy in the daytime, the immediate thing to think about is sleep apnea because alcohol makes sleep apnea worse. So it, it's, oh, that's interesting. So it's not actually the alcohol itself. The next day, the alcohol is gone. But what happened is the alcohol disrupted your night's sleep by making the sleep apnea worse. 
Oh, so that's interesting. So I hadn't thought about it that way. So what you're saying is for somebody with, let's say, undiagnosed sleep apnea or even diagnosed sleep apnea, um, if they're drinking alcohol prior to sleep, the alcohol itself is going to have an effect on their sleep, the rapid metabolization and things like that. But what you're also suggesting is, is it could influence and increase sleep apnea, undiagnosed sleep apnea there, because of course, alcohol is a respiratory depressant. And in fact, alcohol is very, very dangerous. It should be avoided at all costs. And in sleep apnea, as you, of course. As you said, uh, alcohol. So, what about the alcoholic, though? What about the alcoholic drinker? Oh, just one last word on, on the. Oh, hormone yeah, of course. Is just to mention that it also uh, decreases rapid eye movement, sleep, uh, and it can affect slower sleep as well. Now, in the alcoholic, you have a very interesting problem because they have terribly disturbed sleep. And in fact, wishing for a good night's sleep can be one of the reasons you often hear in the clinic for why they fall off the wagon and go back to drinking. Now, the, the fact is, in a, somebody who is a chronic alcoholic, uh, on one single night, taking a drink, uh, they will fall asleep sooner. So on, on a very superficial level, uh, you can understand that the catch is it, it doesn't work in the long run. It uh, it may help you on that one night fall asleep, but what it does is it perpetuates the alcohol addiction, which makes you sleep worse and worse and worse. So even though alcoholics will say, I need that drink to get sleep, in the long term, it's the worst possible thing they can do. Um, and one other point about alcohol addiction is once and and poor sleep is that once you stop drinking uh you're not out of the woods uh, even after a couple weeks when you've passed through the uh withdrawal syndrome which can be a period of very disturbed sleep uh, how long does it take to withdraw from alcohol well the there's two parts and one would be the acute withdrawal syndrome things like dts and alcoholic hallucinosis which usually begin in the first uh, few days and last a few days. But but once you're past the, the acute kind of emergency alcohol withdrawal, folks with alcohol addiction can have trouble sleeping up to two years. And so so in my in my clinic, I very often have somebody come in and say, uh, you know, I, I've got really bad insomnia and uh, can you help me? And then I'm taking the history and I hear I, I, they don't mention alcohol, and I, I elicit it during my questions. And then I'll say, well, why why didn't you mention the drinking? And they said, well, it's because I haven't had a drink in a year. And, <laughs> I, and then I, I explained to them that, that uh, sadly, alcohol makes a lot of changes in the brain neurotransmitters, and very often, particularly in getting back the normal amount of slow-wave sleep. It can be up to two years until you you feel like your uh, your sleep is more normal. Wow, that's amazing. So yeah. so wow, that's incredible. So getting back to the idea of the mechanism of action, when the alcohol enters the system, it forms it gets the, it gives us this euphoric feeling. Um, and do you think that it's just the level of sleep deprivation that people already have that kind of takes over and makes them feel more sleepy? Or is there something about the alcohol itself that increases something like adenosine or starts to make people feel more sleepy? Or what, what do you think is actually going on there? Well, alcohol does, does inherently uh, 
in a, in the short term in a non-alcoholic uh, make a person sleepy. But you raised a really good point, which I didn't mention, and that is that uh, alcohol and sedatives of other kinds interact with sleep deprivation. So just as common sense would suggest, there have been studies that show that if, if you haven't been getting enough sleep, uh, the same dose of alcohol will, will have a much bigger wallop. that makes sense to me too so okay so let's go to the opposite end of the spectrum we've been talking about alcohol which of course is a depressant both respiratory uh, emotionally things like that let's talk about caffeine right another big big substance that lots and lots of people are using you know when we start to talk about caffeine we start to talk about things like half-lives of caffeine and when should people stop drinking caffeine and things like that help us understand from your perspective wally what does caffeine do to sleep well, caffeine, uh, of course, dis- uh, disturbs sleep greatly, especially waking time after sleep onset. Uh, its effects are thought to be largely due to affecting the neurotransmitter adenosine. Uh, and as you just pointed out, in taking a history from a patient with insomnia, finding out about their caffeine consumption is very important. Now, uh, one thing to mention is that when you ask a person about caffeine, they immediately will respond about uh, how much coffee, tea, and soft drinks they take. One that they often do not think of is over-the-counter medicines. (laughs) Yep. Yeah. Now, some over-the-counter medicines, it's pretty obvious. Things that, that are, you know, that are given, that are labeled as giving you more energy or making more weight. But the thing, the thing that a lot of folks don't realize is there, caffeine is also found in a lot of other kinds of uh, over-the-counter medicines. For instance, sometimes in medicines for uh, menstrual disorder uh, mm-hmm. discomfort, as an example. So, right. take, so taking a hit, caffeine history heavily gets into over-the-counter medicines. Yeah, you know, I agree with that. Also, you know, the other thing I find, I don't know if you've discovered this as well when you're taking a history, is when I ask people, you know, how much coffee do you drink in a day? They might say, oh, you know, one or two cups. And then I say, okay, are we talking about a, a six ounce cup or are we talking about a 12 ounce cup or we th- you know and people have no like a cup of coffee to them is like a starbucks humongo thing so i'm always trying to quantify that aspect as well do you have that as an issue that's a very good one and uh, really that's a good reminder to me thanks for mentioning that one <laughs> yeah yeah and the other one that's big that's kind of funny in my house is chocolate Um, and so my wife has made it very clear that if I tell people that they cannot eat chocolate, that she will divorce me. So I never will go on anywhere and say that you cannot eat chocolate. But for the folks listening out there, does chocolate make that big of a difference if you have a a square or two in the evenings? Well, I think there is some data to say, uh, that it has an effect on sleep. I'm I'm a little less familiar with it, but yeah, it is certainly on the list of of things to ask about when somebody's not sleeping. What would, what would be some of your general guidelines for caffeine use? Do you tell people to stop at a particular time if they're caffeine users, or do you recommend, hey, see what you can do to get yourself off of caffeine completely? This isn't a normal human, not in an insomniac. In an insomniac, I never recommend ca- that they use caffeine, but in a normal human, what would you say to them about amounts of caffeine, if you will, or timing or things like that? You know, people vary terrifically in their sensitivity to caffeine. I know, isn't it amazing? Yeah, so I 
I don't really have a good general principle I, uh, that I use, but but as you're just saying, uh, it's one of the drugs that, in particular, individual differences are just so remarkable. Yeah, it's true. It's pretty amazing to me that there are so many different um, reactions to caffeine. I, I I had a funny story. I had one patient who would drink a three liter bottle of soft drinks a day. Uh, Coca-Cola in particular. I was living in Atlanta at the time. That's where I practiced. Um, and so, you know, home of Coca-Cola, uh, I'm a big fan. And so I started talking to her. And so we realized how much caffeine she was taking in and it was having a tr- terrible effect. Uh, also, all the weight that she had gained from this incredibly sugary substance. So I walked and she had terrible sleep apnea. So I walked in and I said, you know, Mrs. So-and-so, I need to let you know you've got terrible sleep apnea, but I've got some good news for you is that we've discovered that if you stop drinking three liters of of Coca-Cola a day, um, it will help dramatically with your sleep and we're going to get you on a CPAP machine and all this other stuff. And you know what she looked at me and said? What? She said, I'll just change to Diet Coke. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. Isn't that something? Isn't that crazy? Like I, I never saw it coming. I was like, I, I thought I was being like the good doctor. I'm going to teach you how to lose weight. I'm, and she was like, no, 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 no. I'll just drink Diet Coke. So, you know, when we talk about the, um, the addiction to caffeine, I think that's a real, <laughs> I think that's a real thing out there. There are so many people, honestly, Wally, if I could pick one thing out there that seems to do the most damage to sleep other than not sleeping on a, a consistent sleep schedule, which is my big, big thing. I want people waking up at the same time every day. It's just this caffeine use. It's so incredible how much this is like our energy society and we've got energy drinks and we've got caffeine here. And I mean, and some of the volume of caffeine in some of these things is dramatic. Um, let, let's go to the opposite side of the coin. We, we know that we want people to stop drinking caffeine, but at what point do we know that caffeine remarkably affects sleep or is it still just such a different individual difference on people that it's hard to say? I, I think it's the latter. That we're, we're, yeah. we're just such individual. And by the way, what came to my mind when you told me the story about the, the, the lady that, you know, who talked about switching to Diet Coke, I've seen an analogous kind of problem in treating folks with alcoholism and sleep troubles because mm-hmm. they'll, they'll come to the clinic, you know, complaining of insomnia. But then when you take the history, you find it back that they, they have a real alcohol problem. And it's, and it's not at all uncommon for a patient to say to me, uh, uh, well, Dr. Mendelson, let's do this. Let's fix my sleep. And after I'm sleeping better, then I'll have the, energy to deal with the alcohol and 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 i have to explain that it doesn't work that way the the reason they're having trouble sleeping is because of the uh alcohol but but it comes to a very good general principle in in my mind in insomnia therapy in general and that is that the the night is very much connected to the day A a patient like the one we just described they want to say, well, I'm here in a sleep clinic. I want you to take care of my sleep. Alcohol is a different topic. That's something right. I do when I'm awake. Yeah. And, and, and your job as a sleep doctor is to try to explain that, in fact, the, the night is very much connected to the daytime behavior, and day, especially daytime drug behavior. Yeah. And, you know, I find I, I couldn't agree with you more. And I find that happens also when I talk to people about weight. Uh Um, especially my sleep apnea patients who have a tendency to be a little bit on the bigger side. And I talk to them about nutrition and exercise and weight loss. And they're like, you're my sleep doctor. You're not my weight doctor. Mm -hmm. And I, 
right? And, and I mean, I, I've, I've heard that a million times and I'm like, actually, I'm both. So, you know, let's get past this. You don't have to have a weight doctor and a sleep doctor. We're all in the same person. His name is Michael Bruce and we're going to work this out. Now, to be clear, I'm not a nutritionist and I'm not a, a weight loss specialist, but what I will, but I do all the time is work in conjunction with people and their therapists. Um, a lot of people have food uh, addiction issues, which can be also something to bring on board. And, you know, that kind of brings up the other uh, area of expertise that I'm not sure if you're a, if you're big in this area or not, but cannabis you know, has been a big area for people to utilize cannabis, um, specifically in the PTSD population. Um, I first learned about the effects of cannabis on sleep when working at the VA during my residency. Um, I discovered, at least from what the veterans were telling me, it was kind of one of the only things that really seemed to help relax them and kind of calm them down. What I call their hypervigilance seemed to lower. Um, with the use of cannabis. Yet at the same time, cannabis we know has some pretty interesting effects on sleep as well. Have you done any research work or have had any experience working with cannabis and in terms of like your addiction studies or things like that? Um, no, I haven't. Uh, I guess the only comment that, that I can make is that at this point, there are no cannabinoid-related drugs that are, that are FDA-approved and on the market for sleep. But uh, as changing hats to a basic science animal researcher, which I also am, uh, we have found that some uh, neurochemicals that affect the cannabinoid system uh, increase sleep in animals. And one of the things that I've always been very interested in has been whether, uh, as time goes on, there will be research into seeing whether any cannabinoid-related medicines might be useful for sleep. Uh, I, I just want to emphasize a second time that at this time there are no there are no drugs approved for that purpose. Right, a hundred percent. And and what Dr. Mendelson is talking about is there's kind of a weird thing happening now with cannabis. Um, so as many people know, cannabis is uh, recreate medically legal in I think twenty something states and recreationally legal in a dozen or so more. And so what a lot of people are doing is kind of doing their own science experiment and running out and using cannabis for sleep or things like that. I've written about uh, cannabis and sleep extensively, and and Dr. Mendelson is one hundred percent correct. There currently is no FDA approved pharmaceutical medication using cannabinoids for sleep. Um, there is one for apnea, I think, um, or it was approved for apnea. Um, and then there was something called Drabinol at some point, which was more of a, I can't remember if it was a THC-based drug. But, you know, as you, as you said, for insomnia, we don't really see that now. And, and until we get, you know, some solid science on it, I would tell people that, um, you know, user beware, be cautious. Um, you know, if you're going to be recreational about using those things, remember, cannabis does have a pretty significant effect on our sleep. As again, I've written about that uh, in my sleep architecture articles quite a bit. Um, so I, I, the area, the last area that I want to ask you about, which I just think is so fascinating is this area of mental health and sleep. And it's been an area that you've spent a preponderance of your career looking at. And, you know, some of the, some of the mental health issues that you've had the chance to see and deal with in your career, things that, you know, most people would never uh, see or hear about schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, things like that. Help us understand what the sleep is like, for example, in somebody who's suffering from schizophrenia and, and how do we help those people? Does sleep, is sleep really a big problem for them or, or is it not really a big factor for, let's say, schizophrenics? 
Well, uh, schizophrenics can have very disturbed sleep and very altered sleep architecture. Uh, my ex, uh, or, or passed away colleague Chris Gillen wrote extensively on sleep and schizophrenia, and it's a very, very uh, interesting issue. Uh, bipolar disorder uh, has profound effects. Uh, we already mentioned that during the depressed phase of uh, bipolar disorder, uh, people often complain of excessive sleepiness. They, when the switch into mania occurs, interestingly, uh, disturbed sleep or, or just complaining of not sleeping is very often uh, something that happens a day or two before the full manic event happens. Uh -huh. So I, I try to train my uh, fellows uh, that whenever somebody with a history of bipolar disorder tells you that, uh, gee, you know, I, I didn't sleep last night, I feel fine. That should immediately uh, run up a red flag. Is this person about to slip into a, a, a manic episode? Um, during the manic episode itself, uh, sleep uh, there's very often a, uh, excessive energy, uh, rapid rapid speech, uh, this, uh, and many other features. And one of them is very often not not sleeping very much at all. Yeah, I agree. So now let's talk about the second half of um, of that. You know, we've talked a lot about depression. We talked about bipolar. What about anxiety? Because you've actually written a book called Understanding Medicines for Anxiety. Um, and again, you're the most prolific guy I know. I love it. So help us understand um, just briefly, what do you think the effects of anxiety are on sleep? Um, and we know, obviously, that people with insomnia, um, that might be a particular area of interest for some of those folks. Well, Sure. Well, anxiety, of course, can have a very big impact on disturbed sleep. Uh, and one of the issues that often comes up is that folks uh, who are anxious may lie down and then use the bed as a place to think about their worries and their anxieties. And, and uh, I, I know you as a therapist uh, deal with that a great deal and uh, have a number of responses uh, for doing it. I, I always try to focus on this period of lying in bed and anxiety and uh, try to help a person to uh, <clears throat> to realize that this isn't the place to, to be dealing with their anxieties. And there's a number of strategies. I'd be really interested to hear what you use. One, one of the ones that I do is I'll, I'll tell folks, you know, if you're feeling anxious about something when you lie in bed, get up, write it down on a piece of paper and put it on the dresser. And promise yourself tomorrow morning you look at it first thing you get up so you don't have to worry about it now and it's out of mind but no it won't be forgotten because you you got it right there on that paper do you use techniques like that or? i do as a matter of fact so i do something very similar to that that i call a worry journal so one of the things I've discovered is if people write stuff down right before bed, they can't seem to get it out of their head. So the technique that you use, I like a lot, but I usually have them do it at like three or four o'clock in the afternoon. Um, because if they write it down right before bed, they can't stop thinking about it, unfortunately. Um, but I like that technique a lot. The other thing that I have a lot of people do before bed um, is some form of meditation, relaxation, prayer, something to kind of land you know, because so many people 
I feel like they're running, 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 you know, and then at the last second, they're like, oh, yeah, I better go to sleep now. It's midnight or it's one o'clock in the morning. And they wait till they pass out as opposed to like giving themselves a time to go to bed, a time to wake up, having a ritual before and a ritual after. That's that's really what I kind of push for people these days. Well, I, well, I think you've touched on something very important. I, to, I I sort of think of that issue as being how folks had the loss of the, of the concept of an evening. Yeah. They, they run right at full pace right up until the, when they hop into bed. So the idea of having an evening to calm down is is uh, is lost on lost on them and needs to be recovered. Um, I, I would have one tiny caveat on the relaxation exercises because it because by far in the majority of folks, as you say, it, it's a great thing to do. But every once in a while, uh, I'll come across a person who's so anxious that the act of relaxing, especially muscle relaxation, makes them more anxious. Yep, yep. (laughs) I've had that happen about twice in my career, so I think that's a very good thing to mention is that for some people, something like progressive muscle relaxation could actually invoke anxiety, um, which is rare, um, but definitely does happen. That's a a great point. Thanks for reminding me, Wally. I appreciate it. So this has been fantastic. I have been, I mean, you have spent so much time with us today, uh, you know, Dr. Mendelson. I can't thank you enough. If people wanted to learn more um, about you and things like that, I know if they go to Amazon and they just type in your last name, Mendelson, they'll see, gosh, you've got so many books here. You've got, let's see, The Science of Sleep, Trial by Fire, The Curious History of Medicines and Psychiatry, Understanding Sleeping Pills, Understanding Antidepressants. Guys, this gentleman is prolific. If you want to learn about how these things work, Dr. Mendelssohn is arguably the expert to follow. So please, please, please make sure that you get one of his books. I recommend The Understanding Sleeping Pills first. That was my first one of his, and then I'm going down the line to read them all. Um, But Wally, if people want to find you um, as well, do you have a website or, or is it primarily they can find your books on Amazon? Well, certainly uh, just going to Amazon and looking for Wallace B. Mendelssohn. Uh, I have a um, page in Wikipedia, again, with Perfect. Wallace B. Mendelssohn. And I also have a website which describes the book, and it's uh, um, org. Uh, slash Wallace Mendelssohn. Okay, so what we'll do is we'll take that link and we'll put it into the show notes so that way people can get it and get to your website. And we'll also put a link directly to these Amazon books here uh, that I really have enjoyed and I know so many people will. And by the way, if you buy one of Dr. Mendelssohn's books, please do do us all a favor and leave him a review. Um, You'll see I left a review on several of his books. Um, I spent a lot of time going through them. You'll, You'll really gain some value from that. But Wally, I can't thank you enough, dude. You're amazing. Thanks for answering all these questions and your history and experience within the sleep field. You really are, you know, somebody that I look up to, uh, whose company I enjoy. And I just want to say thank you so much for your contributions to sleep. It's, it's really been awesome. Oh, thank you, Michael. I've really enjoyed talking with you. Excellent. Hey guys, this is Dr. Michael Bruce, the sleep doctor and Dr. Wallace Mendelson, the, uh, the sleep pharmacist, we could say, uh, wishing all of you sweet dreams. 
Thanks so much for listening to the show. If you know anyone or think you might have a fascinating sleep story to share or maybe make a tremendous guest, please send me an email at drbruce at thesleepdoctor.com. That's D-R-B-R-E-U-S at thesleepdoctor.com. If you want more information, feel free to visit my website at thesleepdoctor.com. I hope you learned something new to help you live better and sleep better. Until next time, sweet dreams.